There's two questions I, I really like to think about. One of them is, what would I do if I knew I couldn't fail? But the other one is, what would I do even if I knew I would fail? Which is really nice because that's the thing that you would do the thing anyway. So I, I just love collecting these sorts of journaling prompts that help mm. us figure out what to do with our lives because then we can reflect on them and, and think, how aligned am I with that? You also talked about burnout. You know, people have been throwing around the word burnout quite a lot. And like broadly, the phenomenon of burnout is where often it presents either as a sense that the work you are doing is meaningless or it presents as a sense of like emotional fatigue. There's this this principle that sounds like it comes from a German sociology teacher called the, the was it the Reithoff? The Reithoff principle. The yeah. Reithoff principle. Reithoff Tell principle. us about this. Yeah, so... <laughs> Are those glasses prescription? <laughs> Welcome to How I Think. I'm your host, Nick Milo. It's easy to read what people write and see what people share, but I want to explore how they think, how the sausage gets made. Yes, we'll cover the creative process, but I also want to find out their unique perspective, see how it was formed, what influenced them, and how it's evolved over time. My guest today is Ali Abdal. He's a doctor turned YouTuber, soon to be turned best-selling author of the brand new book, Feel Good Productivity. He's also become a friend over this year, and I'm thrilled to learn more about his journey to becoming the world's most followed productivity expert. Are you ready? Let's begin. Happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. This is gonna be so much fun. Yeah. This is, I was just relaying, this is the fifth time that we've met this year. The fifth and, time? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, it is. A couple times, London, yeah. Denver, and Ojai. Yeah. Yeah. So it's wild. I'm just really grateful for that. And uh, I think YouTube just seems to be such a big thing. I, I want to start a conversation around there. Now, base, this is based on something you wrote in your book. In your chapter, chapter five, Find Courage, you write that you wanted to start a YouTube channel in 2010. Mm. but you didn't film mm. your first YouTube video until 2017. Mm. What took so long? So in 2010, well, ever since 2008, since I was in school, I always liked the idea of being a YouTuber. And I watched a lot of YouTubers who do musical covers of popular songs. So people like Kurt Schneider, Sam Tui, Boyce Avenue, there was these like OG YouTubers. And they would pick a song like, I don't know, Firework by Katy Perry or something. It's Firework by Katy Perry. Who knows? Like a song like Firework by Katy Perry. And they would like arrange it and like play the piano and someone would be singing along and there'd be like a con and like a guitar and it would be sick. Um, and I thought that would be cool. I'd love to be a YouTuber who does stuff like that. And so every year from about 2010 onwards, every summer in the holidays, I'd be like, yeah, this is, you know, this is the summer where I'm going to make my first YouTube video. And then I'd get started stuck in overthinking. I'd get stuck in thinking I needed the perfect gear. I didn't have any money at the time. I was totally broke. So I'd be like, oh, maybe I could buy like one of these childish microphones. But like, I need a good microphone. Otherwise, I can't do it. And like all of this stuff. And there, seven years later, <laughs> in 2017, when I was in my fifth year of medical school, that was when I actually started making videos for the first time. Hmm. And my first five or six videos were musical singing covers where I was playing the guitar and accompanying some friends. And even for those, there was a lot of like imposter syndrome to get over a lot of perfectionism. And like, no one cared. Like those videos got like three views back in the day. They've got like <laughs> a few thousand now because people look at my back catalog and they see what the hell is going on here. But I had so much like kind of emotions and stuff blocking me from doing this YouTube thing. I'm so glad I managed to get over it eventually because otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, that's amazing. And so even your first first few videos, they weren't just you. They were with your friends and there were these musical things. So, wow, like whatever it takes, you finally got over that hump. Mm. Um, that's really interesting. Don't you think that the seeds were planted like seven years earlier mm. and they were kind of, I don't know, germinating in this way? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way of putting it. I think like the seeds of starting a YouTube channel were planted. I think also the seeds of entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. like in around, when I was around 13, so this would have been like 2007 or something like that. Yeah. Um, I started learning web design and web development and tried to build my first internet businesses. So this idea of like making money on the internet was like a thing in my, in my, in my area. Mm -hmm. And I'd get home from school and I'd be like so excited to hop on this website called getacoder.com and like do some web design and like make a few dollars here and there. And alongside, I was also teaching a lot of uh, kind of maths and English stuff when I was younger. Okay. So I'd be tutoring younger students and I had a part-time job working for this math study center. 
And really, like, it was those three things, this sort of desire to be a YouTuber, plus desire to make money on the internet, plus a background in web design, plus the fact that I was teaching for a long time that ultimately culminated in the YouTube channel seven years later, which was where I was teaching people to get into medical school and had a decent production value and thumbnails and stuff because I knew how to do web design. So all of it, sort of connecting the dots looking back, starts to make a lot of sense. But obviously... At the time, I was just sort of throwing shit at the walls and trying to figure out what would stick yeah. and just trying to do do what felt enjoyable in the moment. That is wild to see how your all these random skill sets coalesced into something really spectacular. Mm. Also in your book, you, you talked about your little brother and the protege effect, how basically teaching him, but it sounds like you t- taught a lot of different people. That's really fascinating because you're young. At that, I mean, at, at, you're saying you're 13 or- Yeah, you, but like I was helping people who were like seven, eight. At the time. <laughs> then as I got older, you know, when I was 16, I started doing private tutoring for kids who were like 14 to 16. When I was 18, I was helping kids who were 16. When I was in medical school, I was helping younger medical students. And so like every year of my life, I've tried to, I just, I just realized I really enjoyed teaching. And I, I didn't quite realize this until like 15 years later when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I asked myself like, you know, what are the moments of, that have been the most meaningful what would I want written on my gravestone? Mm. And I mm. landed on some combination of good father, good husband, and good teacher or inspirational teacher. And that was when I realized, ah, oh, wait, shit, I've been teaching every year since like 13. And that that was so meaningful. And I love this shit. So like, that is the thing that I want to do with my life. Yeah. They, there are so many quotes around different ways to learn better by teaching. You include one in your book by Seneca, and I can't remember it exactly. Yeah, it's like a Greek quote or something. Uh, <laughs> qui dolcet something. So those those who those who teach learn something to that effect. Yeah, I mean, in what's that? Four words. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> to encompass so much of of kind of what work, has seemed to work so well for you in life. And not just for you, but for everyone that you've influenced. That's culminating, not not at the end, but just as another milestone, mm. that amazing book. And it looks beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Quick one, while we're still on YouTube, I'm going to pull us back there for just a little bit. Out of all these videos that you made, now this is something I've, I've recognized recently. The ones I love the most don't always play well. Is there mm. a particular video that you just think, oh, I really love that one? It's like, it's like a hidden gem, even if it doesn't have the view count. <laughs> There was one video I made where I, you know, there was a trend on YouTube where this guy called Dr. Mike would react to medical TV shows and he was absolutely blowing up and he was like a really good looking doctor and he would react to like Grey's Anatomy and explain the medical side of it. So I was like, okay, that's a cool concept. Why don't I explain the science behind Harry Potter? And so I have a video where I painstakingly did a bunch of research to figure out what are the elements from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone that have some kind of science behind them, like... If Petrificus Totalis were um, a drug, what drug would it be? It would be something that caused muscle paralysis and stuff. You know, when Snape at the start talks about uh, dittany and aconite and a bezoar stone and stuff in his potions class, uh, what are these herbs? And it turns out they're all things with medical properties. So I made a whole, it took bloody ages to make this video. I illustrated animations and diagrams and stuff and no one cared. It completely flopped. But oh, man. it was fun and it was an experiment. And I think like looking back on this now, a lot of being a successful YouTuber, especially for longer than a few years, is about experimenting, experimenting your way to success. And there are so many series I've tried on the channel that I've, I've tried and, and that have flopped. Mm. And then some of them work out and then you're like, okay, cool, that one worked. And you double down on the things that worked. Yeah. A few years ago, I realized I needed a more series of, of content. And so I thought, huh, I enjoy reading books. What if I made a video where I just, uh, a series or called a book club where I just make videos about books? And what if, you know, if this becomes big, then one day I'd be able to interview authors talking about their books and then they'd want to come on my channel because I make good videos about books. And so now I've made like loads of videos about books and that series has done really well. And I know from the grapevine that authors like Morgan Housel have been saying to their friends that, hey, that video that Ali Abdal made for us, <laughs> the psychology of money really did, you know, did good things for our book sales. Alongside wow. that, I've had like dozens of series that I've I've started and tried that have not failed, but I, that sorry that have not worked, mm-hmm. including this like science explained where I was like, welcome back to a new series called like Medic Science Explained, and in in each video in the series, I'm going to do X Y Z. I just made one video in the series, the Harry Potter one, and it didn't work. I was like, <laughs> okay, that's fine. So I think I'm all about you know having an experimental mindset and an experimental approach to stuff, and that, and that's clear in the book too because each chapter has six experiments in it. And after I got through, because there are three parts as well. So after mm-hmm. I got through the first part, 
That's 18, yeah. uh, three chapters, 18 experiments. Quite a lot. It's almost too much. Oh, well, you know, I felt full. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, there, I mean, is that it? I mean, I felt like that's the end of the book. And then when I was looking at the page count, I thought, whoa, there's a lot of meat per minute here. Mm. So I was like, okay, let's go. Let's find out about these. Meat un- per minute. I like meat per minute. Uh, <laughs> the, the issue with meat per minute is that, uh, so Ma- uh, Malcolm Gladwell has an analogy around um, books are made up of meat and candy. Ooh. And meat is the stuff that like is the the value of the book, but candy is the stuff that people will talk about. And you have to have, if you want to be a, mm. a well-selling author, you have to have a good balance of candy as well. And so yeah. a big challenge with the book was trying to make moments where people are like, oh, you know, that that one thing that you said about that thing is the thing I really liked. And often I found when I give talks about this stuff, that the simplest things are the ones that people talk about. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, to that point, I, I think that's such a balance. And there there will always be the critics that say, oh, too many stories. I just want the facts. But I noticed that that excellent balance in here where the mm. stories were never feeling overbearing or that they went on for too long. They they were there, they were compelling, they made a point. And then that led to an, an experiment or some takeaway or a personal story, which I really loved just hearing all the different personal stories that you had. Like the fact that you are a magician. Yeah. Who, I mean, where'd that come from? <laughs> oh, so some would say that came from uh, an inferiority complex when I was in school. <laughs> and the only thing that I had attached to my identity was the guy who got good grades. I wanted to be cooler mm. than that. And so when I was around 16, 17, I watched uh, Penn and Teller Fool Us, where magicians would come into Penn and Teller and they would try and fool them and stuff. And there was this magician called Michael Vincent who came on with this fucking amazing card trick where he would do some stuff with the cards. And at the end, he was like spieling a bit and he was shuffling the cards and things like that. And he was it was a very nice, nice motivational message. And then after doing all his shuffling, he spread the cards out and they were all in order. And it was just like a new deck order, like ace through to king for each of the four suits. And my mind was just blown Whoa. In, a, like in, a, in an absolute mental way. And I thought, wow, I want to be able to do card tricks. <laughs> and so I started learning how to be a magician, um, bought a bunch of books, pirated a bunch of DVDs, bought a bunch of magic supplies. And I would have a deck of cards with me when I was in school and I would show people card tricks. And <laughs> the uh, the kind of popular kids would then like be like, oh my God, I show us a card trick. And I, still, I, I started getting all this validation, mm. which I hadn't really had previously. Um, and maybe connecting the dots, looking back, maybe that's where the desire for validation came from, the addiction to like, ooh, likes and like success metrics and stuff mm. on YouTube, wanting to be seen as someone more than just the guy who got good grades. I think that's where the magician thing came from. And then I kept on with it for several years and trying to audition for the Magic Circle now, which oh. is a prestigious uh, organization in the UK and you have to like do a 12-minute act. So I'm working with all my friends to make a 12-minute act. Oh, right Right now you are? Well, like, you know, You're still... on and off for the last okay. couple of years, yeah. It'll, right. it'll happen at some point in the next few years. So yeah. the tricks are still alive. The tricks still... are still alive, okay, yeah. Cool. I've got a few sponge balls in my little tech bag where I do some tricks. Before we completely uh, move away from my YouTube, I'm sure we'll always circle back to that. But you did talk about the book club series. Mm. And what are a couple of the books, like from that series, the books that you've talked about, I'm kind of curious which ones really stood out to you. Like one that stood out to me from your reviews was 4,000 Weeks. Mm by Oliver Berkman. I'm just kind of curious if you had a favorite. There's um, so many that you've yeah. reviewed. Is there any that come to your mind? Yeah, I mean, the, the book that had the most, the biggest impact on my life was The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Mm. Um, a second place would be Show Your Work by Austin Kleon. Mm. Show Your Work was actually the book that helped me get over the fear of putting myself out there. So in 2016, I read that book. And that was the wow. book that helped me start my own personal website. Because before reading that book, I was thinking, I, you know, I've been thinking for a while, I want to start a blog. Like, that seems cool. I was reading, like, I think I might have been reading Mark Manson's blog as well back in the day. <laughs> but I, was, I, would, I would read these blogs and I think, oh, it'd be cool to start a blog. And I bought the domain aliabdal.com. Mm. And for years, I just sat on it because I was like, oh, it's, it's too weird to have a blog. Like, I can't, I can't be the guy who has their blog, a blog called aliabdal.com. That's weird. That's too arrogant. That's too audacious. And reading Show Your Work by Austin Kleon helped me realize that actually, in the modern world, you can't just do do stuff and expect people to find it. You have to be findable. Mm-hmm. And in terms of posting stuff online, it's totally okay to show your work. You know, if that if showing that work could help someone who's a step behind on the path or could help people discover you or anything like that, just teaching what you know and sharing what you're working on is a totally reasonable thing to do. And Austin Cleon made a really great case for that in the book. And so I was like, cool. January 2016, started a blog. And that was the precursor for the YouTube channel. Because I don't think, I think if I hadn't started the blog, I definitely wouldn't have had the confidence to start the YouTube channel. It's a totally reasonable thing to do. That is uh, just something that needs to kind of be on repeat because there's just so much fear 
out there of, of starting or any of this and to just recognize, hey, this is reasonable. Yeah. Like this is the reasonable thing to do. You can do it. So and it's like broadly, no one cares when you do it. So it's fine. <laughs> and so what's not reasonable then? <laughs> I don't know. There's very little that's not reasonable. I think, um, yeah. Honestly, most things that people want to do, they probably can. I think there's a lot of fear in people's eyes. There's, okay, I'm going to caveat here. So like, if someone is below the poverty line, then it is very difficult for them to sort of just take take risks and like do stuff because you've got to feed, feed the family. Like, obviously, let's caveat that, put all of that aside. I suspect the sorts of people listening to this podcast or listening to how I think and, and following your stuff are not at that level where they have to worry about the basic the basic needs being met. Mm-hmm. Provided your basic needs are met, there's almost nothing you can do that's like too audacious. Um, I think, you know, I see I, I see this a lot with people like wanting to, I don't know, quit their job and do something else. It's like, it feels like such a big deal because, oh, my job making me 50K. And so if I do something else, I'm, I'm down to zero. It's like, no, you could always just get another job. Maybe you'll get a 40K job. So it's only a 10K risk. And also 10K, well, once you've got your basic needs met and as long, again, as long as you're not on the poverty line, you're probably all right. But we put so much fear into like decisions like leaving the job or starting a YouTube channel or doing stuff like this. And I used to be like this back in the day. And so I'm trying to, like whenever I, I meet people who I feel like, could do something that they really want to do, but they're being held back by fear. Mm. I'm, I always try and be as encouraging as possible to be like, hey man, just like do the thing. It's yeah. not It's not that deep. No one <laughs> cares. You don't need to take yourself so seriously. Again, provided you can feed yourself, like you're actually good. So you can take risks, especially yeah. when you're young. So on that point, um, and tying back to the book, the Batman effect, which I loved. It was like, oh, it makes so much sense. Yeah. And, uh, and so I guess question for you right now, are those glasses prescription? <laughs> so these glasses are actually fake. Um, the so I had laser eye surgery about two years ago, and that cured my need to wear glasses. But uh, I still wear the glasses partly because there's like brand association hmm. and stuff. Partly because this actually is a bit of a, a privacy screen in that I tend not to post photos of me looking like this. And so if I want privacy a bit more when I'm out with my girlfriend or my family or something, I can just take the glasses off. Hmm. But most importantly, I think. You know, there's this thing called the Batman effect, which, 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 which I talk about in the book, which is from a study that some psychologists did on like kindergartners. And they asked them to like, they, they split them up into a bunch of different groups. And they asked them to do some sort of like creative task or something. And one of the groups was just told to do the task as normal. And another one of the groups was told to like, imagine themselves as like, you know, imagine themselves being more confident or something like that. But the final group, was told to imagine themselves as some sort of character, like Dora the Explorer or Batman. Ooh. And they found when the results came in that the group of students who imagined themselves as being Batman or Dora the Explorer or whatever, they did better in the task and they felt better about it and they were more creative and they were more like resilient and all the good things just by, as a result of like putting yourself into the shoes of someone that you're, that, that, that you're not. And they call this the Batman effect. And a bunch of people have used this over the years. So um, Beyonce had an alter ego called Sasha Fierce that one of her albums was named after. And this was the alter ego that she would use when on stage and also to sort of separate her from the media because she would feel as if she's this character and not herself. Adele used a similar trick. And so when I read about this, I realized that for me, the putting on the glasses, it's like I'm like the the person who I like to try and embody is young Charles Xavier from the X-Men series, uh-huh. played by James McAvoy in the amazing film X-Men First Class. Um, <laughs> and... I am, and in that sense, I imagine myself as a teacher, as just like, oh, I'm just a, I'm just a dude who learns stuff and then who shares it with people, and I'm sharing from the heart and I'm sincere about it, and that is what putting on the glasses helps me, helps me embody. Yeah, it makes me immediately. Thank you for sharing that. It makes me think like, okay, who's my alter ego? And I don't know, but just that like thought journey, that little jaunt is is so fun to go on. Yeah. Like, and I don't know what it is. I'll get back to you when I figure out a couple. Nice. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Have you got any ideas on the shortlist? Like who could it be? If you had to, if you had Ooh. a gun to your head and you had to like so write a few names. When Return of the King came out, Lord of the Rings, I went dressed up with some friends for the midnight premiere. Of course. And uh, I was dressed up as Aragorn, of course. Nice. But everyone's like, oh, Frodo. I was like, <laughs> Aragorn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, this is the big sword, not the small one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, I don't know. I, I think the the characters from there, I think, really kind of like speak to me in how they can straddle, I, I don't know, both the masculine and kind of like the softer, you know, they don't have to present to feel confident in who they are and mm. how they show love. So there's something there. 
There, so yeah, I don't know these days who's on the short list, but I think maybe, I think Aragorn might still be on the short list there. Nice. Yeah. Nice. It's a good alter ego. Yeah. I'll think about it some more. Nice. Okay. A um, couple other books. Okay. So not on, nothing that you've done with the book club. I'm just kind of curious because your, your audience obviously loves books. My audience loves books. What's another hidden gem that is a book that you've read that you haven't widely talked about, or at least you haven't recorded a video on that really spoke to you? Hmm. That's a good question. So in the world of business, there's a book called The E-Myth Revisited by Michael mm. Gerber. Mm. And that is like a, looks like a boring business book, but it's actually really good. Uh, and it's all about delegation. And that book helped me realize as I was building my business that I needed to hire people, I needed to delegate and help me figure out some of the, um, some of the ways that I could go wrong along that path. So I, I, I just love, absolutely love that book. Um, but another one that I've been rereading recently is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, mm. which lots of people are familiar with because it's a huge bestseller. But I read, I read it a few years ago and it didn't quite vibe with me. But I recently reread it about a week ago mm. um, when staying with some friends in Colorado. And it really started to vibe with me. The idea of focusing on the present moment and just the, the, the truth that the present moment is all we have. That has been a really empowering and freeing thought for me over the last few weeks. At the present moment is all we have. You know, at the moment, at the time that we're recording this, there is tons and tons of bad shit happening in the world. Like we're in the midst of the Gaza war. Mm -hmm. um, every day on my social media feeds and in the, in, the new, in the news, I'm sort of glued to what's going on. And there's just so much suffering in the world. But that book kind of helps me realize that despite the fact that there's all the suffering in the world, fundamentally, all we can do is ourselves is to live in the present moment. And so when I remember that while I'm having a shower or while I'm walking or while I'm playing a video game or doing a podcast or doing a video or whatever the thing might be, it's like, oh, the present moment is all there is. And so let's try and enjoy it. Let's not take it so seriously. Let's approach it with lightness and joy. And yeah, just been trying to, trying to live in that mode a little bit more. Mm. That's really nice. The power of now. Honestly, I've never read it because it felt, it was one of those things that some of the best truths are the most obvious and therefore they're neglected. Mm. And uh, I'm definitely going to to open that one up now. It's very good. It's but a recommend. Yeah, yeah. I love it. But what about note-taking? So a lot of your videos and a lot of what you've shared on YouTube are strategies around learning or taking notes. And how has that evolved for you in the past, let's say, six years, six, yeah. seven years? May I feel like this is a constant search for the Holy Grail that I'm never going to find. <laughs> so you like literally as of yesterday, I started experimenting with Tana and Reflect because I was like, <laughs> hey, I've got some time now. I finished my book. I want to want to write more books. Great. That's a good chance to revive my PKM system. I was actually rewatching your course as well. Oh, funny. Um, I think I, I sort of, I, I'd been taking notes in Obsidian on your course as I was going through. So I resumed some of those. I have yet to find a system that I can actually stick to. Um, I would love some help, some help in this regard because to me, the, there is this holy grail of note-taking, which is that, oh, you know, just as you read stuff, just as you're going about your life, you'll capture all these notes and you make all these connections. And then at some point, you'll just like effortlessly produce a book. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, we're, <laughs> it seems pretty effortful. So like, what, where's, this, where's, this magic, where's this magic bullet of note-taking? Um, yeah, what's, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> You're not doing anything wrong. Like that's, that's the thing. There, there's just different strokes for everyone. Um, what's magical is just, I think with links, the moment that you make a spontaneous connection and, and, and feel that and be like, oh, whoa, because of the tool, it forced me to make that connection. Like it's an environment. So in your book, you mentioned seniors, uh, the term by Brian yeah. Eno. Yep. And um, love for you to talk about that. Um, but that's what I feel like in environments like Obsidian is that it's actually this environment. I'm not surrounded by people. I'm surrounded by these amazing ideas and I'm just among them and they're mm -hmm. talking to each other. I'm like, oh, wait, you two. And then in between, who's missing? Oh, new idea that I haven't played with yet. And then like spark, article, video, great conversation. I want to share. That's kind of um, the magic that starts to happen. Okay, that sounds very inspiring. Okay, I'm, I'm inspired again. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it another go tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, okay, well, well, on seniors, just a second, because there is something I really need to hit on here. And that is this quote by, by somebody in April. Obsidian is my main personal note-taking choice for personal knowledge management. 
I was a bit surprised when you said this in a YouTube video. Is this still the case or are you just constantly checking out new things? Yeah, I think Obsidian is the one that I've stuck to most, but I am still checking out new things. Partly, the reason I'm checking out new things is somewhat commercial in that mm. I like the idea of being able to acquire a small minority stake in like a note-taking app because mm -hmm. I promote the shit out of a lot of note-taking apps and like, I would like to own a, a percentage of <laughs> the one that I promote. And so I've been trying to figure out, like, I don't think Obsidian is that because of the whole open source community nature of the project. Mm -hmm. It seems not to be a for-profit initiative as such. Um, but so I've been exploring with some of the, uh, exploring some of the new ones to, to, to see, like, is there something that I can just put my weight behind and actually start using it? And if I love it, then I can reach out to the, the founders and be like, hey, man, can I invest in you? That, that, that sort of thing. So that's been yeah. in the back of my mind. Yeah. You did that with, oh, I'm not sure if it's worth, if I can mention mm. oh, um, sure. Score App. Yeah. So after you mentioned it um, in a previous previous session that we were hanging out, um, I, I got into that and I mm. love Score App. Score App is great. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing app. Yeah. So, I think this is kind of where a lot of the creator economy is heading where, you know, yes, making online courses is great, but like that, there's a cap to how much money you can make through online courses. But creators with distribution acquiring equity stakes in tech startups that are potentially trying to go big. Mm. That doesn't seem particularly capped. And so that's an interesting area that I'm trying to dabble in mm -hmm. without taking it too seriously because fundamentally the thing that I care about is teaching, not investing. Yeah, but it's a good way to round out that portfolio. Mm. So, hey, I actually want to go back to something else that I read in your book that I think I want to dig into some of the inspirations around your life. And the one that I thought was pretty interesting was under an experiment called schedule your breaks mm. and you relate a story about dr adcock mm. chris what a legend mm. yeah <laughs> yeah so you know the final the, the final part of the book is about how to sustain productivity mm. and actually i was recording the audiobook for it like last month and as i was reading the final three chapters i was like oh my god like i need to take my own advice because i think i'd been <laughs> on the verge of and sort of be on the point of burnout quite a lot. And I hadn't really noticed it until I was reading these things being like, burnout is defined as, but I was like, oh, okay, mm. shit, I need to do this. Um, so there was, a, there was a time a few years ago where I was, I was working in the emergency department. It was my first day on, on the job. Um, and I was just sort of, emergency departments are always, are always busy. Um, but this was just in the aftermath of COVID. And, um, you know, there was loads of, loads of patients coming in. It was my first day. I wanted to make a good impression. And so I was working, I, I think my, my shift started at 8am and it, it got to like 1pm and I was just kind of working away and it was time for lunch, but I was like, nah, I'm going to power through. It's all good. And Dr. Adcock, one of the consultants, um, so we call them consultants, you call them attendings. He was like the, the, the physician in charge of the department. He came up to me and he was like, hey, Ali, have you taken your break yet? And I was like, oh no, I'm good. It's fine. You know, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just you know, carry on. I'll grab some food afterwards. And he kind of reached across and he turned my computer screen off. Mm. It would have been antisocial to power the entire computer off because I had notes that were unsaved. But he, he just turned the screen <laughs> off. And I was like, what's going on? And he was like, look, I think the, the, he basically said that like, no one is going to die because you take a break. Like there is always time to take a break. And he said, he kind of basically explained that in emergency medicine, there is like this hard and fast rule that you cannot go more than four hours without taking a break for at least half an hour because mm. they've done all the studies on this and they found that doctors who don't take breaks end up killing people and that is not a good thing to do mm. and end up burning themselves out as well, which is also not a good thing to do because then we lose doctors from the system. So a lot of the job of the physician in charge of the emergency department is not to see patients, it's to manage the morale and the emotions of the doctors wow. that are working under them wow. and to encourage them to take breaks every four hours. And so he basically forced me to take a lunch break. And I, that, you know, that, that moment always has always stuck with me. I should remember it more often because I could <laughs> definitely take that advice more often. But I think like, yeah, scheduling breaks, making sure you have time to take a break. No one's going to die. It's probably fine. Yeah, no yeah. one's going to die. In the entertainment industry, we say it's not heart surgery. Oh, okay, nice. We're, <laughs> we're flying around through all these different things. Yeah. And it's like, what are we, you know, we don't have to be stressed out of our minds. Yeah. Even during heart surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Even during heart surgery, they take breaks. So, like, yeah. um, if it's if it's open heart surgery, often they'll connect the heart, uh, they'll connect the circulation system up to a pump, and so the heart will stop beating for a bit. So they're they're able to operate on it, and they'll, they'll like cool it down. And the system is like that. You know, this machine is taking the blood out of the patient's body, and then like warming it and cleaning it and filtering it and stuff, and then putting it back in when, once it's warm. And they're fairly chill because you can actually keep a patient under that for like hours and hours and hours. 
So wow. sometimes they'll be like, all right, you know, we're going to take a quick break, 10 minutes. Surgeon will grab a cup of tea. He'll sort of chill around, play some music, and they'll come back to it. And that's also totally fine because you can't maintain concentration for such a long period of time because these are bloody all-day events, these heart, open heart surgeries. Wow. So they take breaks halfway through. They, they, you know, they sometimes take a break for lunch, that sort of thing. When you say it, it makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, just kind of envisioning it. Yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's have lunch. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well. Oh, that's that's pretty wild. Before we get back to other Dr. Adcocks in your life, maybe from earlier on, those type of um, random role models or uh, people who give you a lesson that you don't expect. Mm. Before we get there, uh, you also talked about burnout. And so this is in part three of your book and uh, sustain, right? And that's when I was really leaning forward. Mm. I love the first two parts, just with where I'm at personally, what I've experienced over the past couple of years, working from home, mm. doing all this online stuff, it's burnout. And your chapter on burnout, you're having a conversation with your mom and, uh, but you met, you also come to the realization that there are three types yeah. of burnout. And I was just glued reading those pages. Yeah. So, you know, people have been throwing around the word burnout quite a lot. Um, and like broadly the phenomenon of burnout is where like it's, it's, it sometimes present presents differently for guys and girls. There's like a bit of a, a gender, a gender sort of thing here. Hmm. Often it presents either as a sense that the work you are doing is meaningless or it presents as a sense of like uh, emotional fatigue. And so generally when people are approaching the verge of burnout, like for me, it's this sense, this sense that my work is meaningless. I'll start thinking, oh, what's the point? Mm. I'm doing a podcast, oh, what was the point of that anyway? It's like, oh, I mean, Nick Milo, fuck's sake. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I start having those sorts of thoughts. And I, I, you know, most often it comes to YouTube videos being like, oh God, that video, what was the point? Six side hustle ideas, what, am I just a slave to the algorithm and all this kind of thing? And when I start thinking those sorts of things, I'm usually like, okay, that's a good chance. That's a good sign that like, maybe I should take a break, take a step back, reconnect with why I'm doing this thing. But after doing a bunch of research into burnout, um, I kind of distilled it down into three different types. Um, was this you distilling it? Yeah. I really like those distillations. Oh, nice. I'm glad. Yeah. That was it. it was a team effort, me and the editor and like our research assistant being like, hey, we, we, we've got all these things around burnout. Like, how do we... Because, you know, three-part three structure is always nice. So we were like, there's, oh, yeah. there's, there's got to be a, a three-part structure here because we, we, we could see like these different different threads and we pull them into these three things. Um, so essentially there's overexertion burnout, there's depletion burnout, and there's misalignment burnout. Hmm. So overexertion burnout is what it says on the tin. It's where you're just working too hard, basically. Depletion burnout is where you work for a long time without taking breaks. So this tends to be kind of without taking a vacation, without taking a holiday. And then misalignment burnout is like, I think the most interesting one, because that's where you might be doing something that you enjoy and you might be making money and like climbing the ladder. But the thing that you are doing is out of alignment with what personally fills you with joy and lights you up and energizes you and stuff. Mm. And that's the one that I see so often among successful people, oh. because you can be very successful, but if you're doing something that feels even a little misaligned to what you actually want to be doing with your life, that is a huge recipe for burnout. And from the outside, it's like, you know, you've got it all. You're a successful corporate lawyer. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you've got work-life balance as well. Is it, what's what's happening? Um, I, I found this when I was when I went full time on YouTube for the first time. I'd taken a break from full time medicine. I was like, what right do I have to feel burned out? Like, what? Um, but misalignment burnout strikes when the things that we are doing in the here and now are not aligned to the future that we actually want for ourselves. And that involves trying to figure out what that future actually is, which is which is hard and recognizing when we are deviating too far away from our, I, mean, I don't like using this word because it sounds kind of woo, but it's it's so true. Like we all have this core sense of this thing that lights us up, mm -hmm. this, thing, this, this thing that we enjoy doing, and that's different for, for every one of us. And a big challenge of life and careers and stuff is figuring out what is that thing for you and how can you how, how can you find a way to explore and express it? Yeah, that, that really resonates. The, and the first two are like, okay, yep, yep. And then that last one is this like, ooh, mm. that hits hard, the misalignment. Yeah kind of thinking through that but that's what the whole book is helping for is what i recognize is oh it's the whole book's about like the hidden thing is to, to, from my perspective it's alignment understanding who you are through these experiments with these chapters like okay i can try that and that's going to help me get to that alignment um yeah i, I felt really empowered oh thank you yeah. appreciate it and I, like in in just in terms of like a practical thing that that, that, that people can try on that front a really good experiment that I, I really vibe with is the Odyssey plan. Mm. 
mm. um, which is basically the it's a it's an exercise designed by these professors at Stanford Business School who are specialists in like product design, and they've written a book called Design Your Life, or Designing Your Life, which is about how to apply the principles of product design to a life well lived. And this thing called the Odyssey Plan is basically you imagine yourself three to five years from now, if you continue down your current path, what does your life look like? Then you rewind. You're like, cool, that's fine. Then you imagine yourself three to five years from now, if you had to take a completely different path. Cool. And you write out what that's like. And then you imagine yourself three to five years from now, if you had to take a different path, but you don't need to worry about money and you don't need to worry about what other people think of you. Hmm. And what does that life look like? And the idea behind doing the Odyssey plan is that like often when we're thinking about what to do with our lives, we think very, uh, like the thing that I'm doing is the thing that I will, will, be, I will always be doing. And we tend to be fixated on this, this vision of the world that we know. But if you force yourself to take a step back and even for a few minutes, just like sit in silence and think about it, what would life look like if you had to take a completely different path? If you're not allowed to do the career that you're currently doing, what would you be doing? For me, if I wasn't allowed to be a creator, I'd probably do some sort of tech startup. Hmm. But if I wasn't allowed to be a creator and wasn't allowed to do a tech startup and money and social status were no object, what would I do? <laughs> Ooh, I would probably maybe write books anonymously, which sort of overlaps with the creator thing. But it's like, even even now, just thinking about it in those ways, even I think about this stuff all the time, but I, I always learn something new about myself. And it's doing exercises like that, that helps us get some of the way towards figuring out what do we actually want and then making and then figuring out a way to make sure that our our actions in the here and now are actually aligned with that future. Yeah. Yeah. Not so you don't want to be a magician. <laughs> I would love to have a one man stage show. So a sort of cross between Darren Brown meets Jay Shetty kind of motivational magic music mentalism you throw in the guitar. Throwing the guitar a little bit as well, you know, if yeah. someone's like part of part of building a stage show is that you want to uh, manage the moments for the audience when someone is coming on stage. So, for example, yeah. if you're calling a volunteer up, you suddenly have this moment of dead time mm. where the audience is like waiting for something to happen. And so, or if, for example, you're doing a trick and the the participant on stage has to do something like shuffle cards here or there, or while they're, sh they're shuffling, you have to keep the audience entertained. And so having a guitar to just be able to, there are a few magicians I know who like strum a ukulele while that's happening. It's just kind of fun. It's like they, they add some vibes while other things are happening. So, yeah, maybe some guitar. Okay. Well, if we have to thank the Odyssey plan for that happening in yeah. some alternative future, <laughs> I'm, I'm game for that. The, the, the other thing on that front is like, this is not in the book. Uh, it, it, it was in there, but we cut it out because we only had so much space. There's, there's two questions I, I really like to think about. One of them is, what would I do if I knew I couldn't fail? Hmm. But the other one is, what would I do even if I knew I had, to, even if I knew I would fail? I've not heard that one. Which is really nice. Yeah. Because that's the thing. What would I do even if I knew I would fail? That's the thing that you would do the thing anyway. And so for me, actually, I realized, what would I do if I knew I, I couldn't fail? Oh, I'd build the ultimate productivity app. I'd build the next notion or whatever the thing might be. But would I do that if I knew it would fail? No, absolutely not. Why would I try and build an app if I knew it fail? But even if I knew it would fail, I would still want to build my own magic show because the process of doing it would be so enjoyable. Mm. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Even if I knew it would fail commercially, I'd probably still want to write another book because the process of writing it would help me help me think, help me learn, and it's quite satisfying. Things like that. So I, I just love collecting these sorts of journaling prompts that help mm. us figure out what to do with our lives because then we can reflect on them and, and think, how aligned am I with that? You don't have to be 100% aligned, but if, as long as you know you're moving in a particular direction, yeah. like moving towards the direction of our North Star tends to stave off misalignment burnout and tends to feel really good as well. Yeah. That is an A plus prompt. I mean, the twist there too, because mm. I think most of us have heard the first part, yeah. but not the second one. Mm. So as we get into sustain in that final part, everything that we're talking about, burnout especially, and there's this, this, this principle that sounds like it comes from a German <laughs> sociology teacher or professor mm. called the, the, was it the Reithoff? The Reithoff principle. The yeah. Reithoff principle. Right Tell us principle. about this. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are, I think the, the, this was when in my first year of working full-time as a doctor, you know, I'd, I'd get home from work in the evenings and then I'd edit a YouTube video. And normally I found a way to make editing the YouTube video feel good and feel energizing and enjoyable because that was my whole productivity hack. If you can find a way to make the thing feel good, make it more fun, play some music in the background, put the Hobbit soundtrack as my soundtrack for the video or whatever the thing is, find a way to do transitions, find a way to do anything I could to make the process of editing this video a bit more fun. 
most of the time that worked. And most of the time I'd get home from work and I'd feel excited to edit a video, which is how I was able to churn out content on my YouTube channel. But some days I would just flop on the couch and I wouldn't have the energy to edit the video. Mm-hmm. And I'd feel, and then I'd start beating myself up. I'd start feeling guilty. I'd start being like, oh, but like, you know, consistency and the channel's doing well and I don't want to fuck things up. And I'm like, oh my yeah. God, actually. And I, I, occasionally my housemate, who was also a doctor, would see me doing this. And one time she said, Ali, why don't you just write the rest of the evening off? Why don't you, why don't you write it off? And I was like, huh, it's a good phrase. Why don't I write it off? And I needed, I needed to make an, an issue of my email newsletter that day because I've been writing a weekly email newsletter for like five years now. And I was like, write it off. Why don't I write it off? And I was like, why don't I call it the write-off principle? And initially it was spelled write as in W-R-I-T-E off. But I was like, it's kind of more fun if I just pretended some German sociologist Totally. Spelled R-E-I-T-O-F-F, the write-off principle. It seems more legit, right? It seems it's like, yeah, the something method, the Batman effect. I personally love naming things for my own sake, but I sent this newsletter out and got loads of replies from people being like, oh my God, this, this principle is really helpful. And I didn't tell them it was, I, I sort of pretended it was some German sociology guy. I, I just sort of thought I'd, I'd have a bit of fun with it. And so many people loved the write-off method. And I had to include it in the book, partly as a bit of fun. Um, <laughs> but now, like, like, for example, this evening is a write-off evening for me. Because huh. I realized that, you know, one thing I haven't done in a while is play video games. Ooh. And so after this recording, I might pop over to the Razor store, buy myself a gaming laptop that I've been salivating over for years, and play some Baldur's Gate 3. Nice. And it's going to be my write-off evening. And it's things like, things like that, like, I think some people would be like, basically what you're saying is have an evening off. It's like, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. But for productivity bros, for people who get to chapter eight of a productivity book, usually those people are fairly highly strung, fairly type A personalities, fairly like achievement oriented. Mm. And sometimes I just find it really helpful to be like, yeah, this is a thing. It's a write-off day. Why not? Yeah, I love that so much. And when I saw that term, I was reading pretty fast. Uh, and then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I didn't quite explicitly mention that it was a, sort of a joke in the book, but like <laughs> I, I, some people will pick it up. Yeah. And you've kept that the whole time from yeah. that first newsletter. Because yeah. I was like, okay, so where'd this principle come from? I'm researching now. Oh, like, really? It seems like it came from Ali. But the way that you write about it, it was, you don't go out like, this is a term I've coined. Yeah. You kind of like just sneak it in there. Yeah, like, I just thought principle. it was funny. It's, it, it. It, was, it was initially a joke, but it's stuck. So <laughs> like, I just go with it now. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. A couple, I want to kind of dig into some influences or, you know, parts that are maybe lesser known, mm. maybe dig back just a little bit before the YouTube phase um, and go back to a question as who are the Dr. Adcocks from earlier in your life? So before yep. medical school, before Cambridge. Mm. There was another uh, another moment from Dr. Adcock himself, which was when I was, I think it was in my fourth year of medical school. And that's when around the time people start asking you, what specialty do you want to go into? What residency program do you want to go into? And I was, I was never sure. I was never sure of the answer. I was always like, oh, but like there's so much, like, I don't know, there's like 50 to choose from and I, I need all this sampling and stuff. And I happened to be talking to Dr. Adcock over like coffee one time. And he was like, look, man, just pick something and go for it. And he, he said something, that, he said, it's much easier to steer a moving ship than a stationary ship. And I was like, oh shit, he's so right. So I just decided I was gonna go for plastic surgery, just went for it. <laughs> and in the process of going for plastic surgery, I unlocked lots of opportunities. I started working with this cool charity. I met, met a bunch of people. And eventually I realized I didn't wanna do the thing, but like the process of going towards that specialty meant that I had all this momentum. So when I switched to anesthe- anesthesiology, anesthetics, and then later to obstetrics and gynecology and sort of had a bit of float around, I had this momentum built up. And I, I still think, that, think about that a lot and often say this to my team when it comes to making decisions about things to do in life, it's so easy to get caught up in analysis paralysis. And yet, if you, if you do just pick something and just start to work towards it, the, the way will reveal itself over time. So that's another classic Dr. Adcock one that I, <laughs> I, I always go back to. Um, other influences. So actually, this is, this is less well known. Um, when I was in the seventh grade, we call it, so when I was like 11, there was a friend of mine who was a bit of a bad influence and he's still a friend to this day. His name's James. And one time he and I were sitting next to each other in class and he had this like weird credit card that he signed up for at the age of 11. So he would have lied about his age, <laughs> used his parents' address. Nice. And he, he told me that, look, if you spend money on this credit card, you can like, you can like make a few pounds here and there online. You can, you can, you can make some money on the internet. And he was like, why don't, you give the, well, why don't you give it a go? I was like, make money on the internet. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I could give it a go. But I, but I said to him, no, but hang on. I need, I need, I need to ask my mom for, for, for permission. So, you know, I was a good boy. And he was like, dude, fuck your mom. Why would you ask your mom for, for, for permission? Just like do the thing. 
And I was like, oh, shit, you're right. And he probably doesn't know it, but that comment from James set me on on the, on the entrepreneurial path. Because my mom is like, you know, she's she's a parent, super, super risk averse. Back in the day, like putting your credit card details on the internet was like, oh my God, what the hell are you doing? All of this kind of stuff. If I'd said, hey mom, can I lie about my age and sign up for this like dodgy affiliate marketing money-making scheme on the internet? The answer would have been hell no. But I didn't ask permission. I just went for it. And over time, I learned to code. I started building websites. I started building, trying to build businesses, trying to make money. And all of that sprouted into what this YouTube channel is and what the book now is and why we're here. And it all sort of stemmed from this idea that you don't need to ask permission. And I think, you know, in my context, I was 11. So I was like, my mom was, was the permission holder. But I also think like, we are all waiting for permission from someone to do something. Mm. We don't need that. And we don't need that permission. Um, yeah. So I think about this a lot. Like, who am I waiting for permission to do something from? And then often I realize, huh, I think actually I'm waiting for someone to give me permission to take a break from uploads on the YouTube channel because I need someone to tell me it's, it's okay to do that. But actually, why, am I, why do I need permission? Let me just do the thing. Permissions are so interesting. I mean, the write-off principle mm. is just about giving yourself permission. Yeah. And you have permission to you know, sign up for a fake credit card. Mm. It, it's like carrying a permission list is a kind of a cool thing. Oh, tell me more. A permission list? A permission list. Yeah. yeah. So in, in my notes app, I have this ongoing permission list. Yep. And it's just like, you don't have to take a note on that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It, like anything like that though. It's like, you don't have to. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, I don't. And it's been mm. one of the more liberating things and just, I'll throw it up every now and then. Nice. Yeah. One of the things for me is you don't have to finish that workout. Nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if it really serves me over time, but <laughs> yeah. Well, it does. And that goes to, to your book. I can't remember the exact section, but it just get started to do, do a little bit yeah. and then give yourself that permission not to do the other, um, like, what was it you said? Yeah, you know, just do five yeah, minutes. Yeah, if, if you just do five minutes, you can always give yourself permission to, to not do any more. Usually, more often than not, we'll find that if we do something for five minutes, we end up just wanting to continue doing it because the inertia has, has kicked in. But mm. sometimes if you do it for five minutes and you're like, actually, I'm not feeling it, that's totally okay. There's, there's very little to be gained by forcing yourself to do a, a thing against your will. I think this is why I don't like the whole narrative around discipline and like, yeah. you've got to be more disciplined and all this suffering and all that shit. It's like, okay, fine. But like... Most people are not David Goggins. Most people cannot discipline themselves to wake up at three in the morning every day and just go for a run. For most people, we do the things that we feel like doing and we don't do the things we don't feel like doing. So instead of like complaining about discipline that we're not disciplined enough, let's just find a way to make us actually feel like doing the things that we want to do. Mm-hmm. Let's find a way to make it more fun. Let's find a way to make it feel good. Play music in the background, do it with friends. Like that's what the first three chapters of the book are all about. Just how, what are the strategies that we can use to make stuff a little bit more enjoyable? I love those stat- strategies. People... Play, play people power. Yeah, play people power. Or the three power P's. Yeah. yeah, we were thinking of adding a fourth, which was progress, because that's another big part of it, but we incorporated that into power. Mm-hmm. And then there was going to be a fifth purpose, but then that's the final chapter. <laughs> so it's like, really, there's these five P, three, three to five P's, depending on how you slice the, slice the thing, yeah. that really give anything more enjoyable, uh, make anything feel more enjoyable. And I, and I feel like the, the biggest elephant in the room with that is these environmental factors, going back to seniors, mm. um, like David Goggins, incredible discipline. But when I, when I want to unpack that a bit more, I love looking at, well, what's the environmental factors? Like he's not surrounding himself with Cheetos in his bed, Mm. you know, at night, like, you know, it's the environment that allows discipline as we often think about it to, to, to look like that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I'm, I'm a big advocate for like a pleasant environment to work in. Mm. Like if, if the desk is tidy and the keyboard is like nice, it makes you more, more, it just makes you, it, it makes it just a more pleasant experience to sit down and do some work. This is why I often take my laptop on the go with me. Like I'm rarely at my desk because I like the idea of just going to a coffee shop and working from there. You know, I get out there, it's whatever. It's a bit, it's a bit more enjoyable. Back when I was in medical school, I would do library hopping. So there were like Ooh. loads of libraries around Cambridge. So I'd just go to a different library each day. Adds novelty, adds a sense of adventure. Yeah. And this is actually one of the, one of the sort of practical tips in the book. To make anything more fun, just to ask yourself the question, Simply, what would this look like if it were fun? <laughs> or at the start of the day, the question I ask myself is, what's today's adventure going to be? And mm. it sounds really, it sounds too easy. 
But like just framing any amount of work as an adventure or as fun completely changes the way our, our brains think about the thing and genuinely does make the thing feel like more of an adventure. Yeah. What does an adventurous podcast look like? What does an adventurous writing project look like? How can I make this PowerPoint that I'm boring as PowerPoint, I'm doing a little bit more fun? Can I add a funky animation? Can I put some background music in? Because why not? It's like we're all so worried about being so serious and being like professional and shit <laughs> that like we forget to have a little bit of fun and forget that people want, people, people love to be surrounded by other people who energize them. Yes. And generally being professional is, a, is the same as being boring. And generally that's not the way you energize the people around you and also not the way you get ahead if that's what you care about. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why the book is called Feel Good Productivity. Exactly. Like I, I love that so much. And, and that idea is just seeped within every single chapter. Um, World of Warcraft. <laughs> You mentioned that. Yeah. And I loved reading that little sentence. It's like, when I enter World of Warcraft, I'm not Eliabdal. Yeah. I'm Sephiroth. Sephiroth, a blood elf, <laughs> a level 80 blood elf warlock with billowing robes and yeah, <laughs> an army of demons at my command. Yeah. It's play. It's it's side quests. Yeah. It's adventures. Yeah. All of that stuff. Chapter yeah. one. People can just, honestly, people can just read chapter one. Introduction in chapter one, and then you'll get most of the book. <laughs> <laughs> not true, but that, that's an awesome part of it for sure. I have a question for you. Why did you decide to start this podcast? What's the motivation? Uh, you've, you've heard me mention it already so many times. I'm obsessed with environment and I want to be around people who inspire me and I, I want to be connected to, and have these conversations like we're having right now. Like that means so much to me. I'm obsessed with that. I actually, I had this whole book um, when I was in New York around 2014. It's all written, but I never publish it. It's called Amateur's Quest. Oh, that's a nice title. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, and that might be what the book that comes after linking your thinking. But the the whole point was this this journey down willpower. I thought a huge part of it was going to be about how to strengthen willpower slash discipline. And it was this Matruska doll. And I was like, okay, so willpower is actually a smaller one and that's based on habits, but above habits is an environment. And it was just like, what's the biggest Matrushka doll of them all? And at least my conclusions at that time, that was a decade ago, was it was environment. And if I want to change any type of behavior, if I want to be more disciplined, um, it's all about who I'm around, what the environment is. So this, the, the impetus to do this, this podcast is, and is just mainly to be around inspiring people and, and to get to curate that list, you know, like you can't meet with everyone. I can't meet with everyone. So who can I meet with? That would just be amazing. Yeah. Nice. It's a good reason to do it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for spinning the tables there. Uh, <laughs> have you done this before? <laughs> um, okay, so I, I love this question. If researchers were observing you at ages, let's say eight to 18, or let's go eight to 16, what would they have noticed? Anything unusual? That's a good question. So I think they would have noticed spending a lot of time on the computer. Um, they may have noticed spending a lot of that time doing things that looked like wasting time. Um, I was watching so many TV shows back in the day. I was addicted to World of Warcraft for three years from age 14 to 17, where I'd be playing like three and a half hours a day. But at the same time, I managed to do all my schoolwork. And also I managed to try and do like build these web, web design businesses and learn web design development and stuff. And one of the things that always puzzled me about my peers is that we would all have <laughs> the same number of hours in the day in that we'd all get home from school around 4 p.m. and then we'd all sleep around like 10. So we would all have those six hours every day to do stuff. And in that time, I was playing three, three and a half hours of World of Warcraft, having dinner, doing my homework, watching TV shows, and also doing web design and development. And a lot of other people were complaining that they didn't have time once they did food and, and homework to do anything else. Mm. And so I always found ways to squeeze more stuff into my time. And I, but I think it's because the stuff felt so energizing. And that is, I guess, the sort of, message of the book like if you do the things that feel good or find a way to make whatever you're doing feel good it becomes more energizing and you have way more energy to give to to it and to other things so when i'd i'd come rushing home from school to do a web design project i'd be like yeah and i'd make some progress on my mysql queries or whatever and i'd be like cool, world of warcraft for a bit and that was super energizing i'd be like cool tv show to wind down and it was just like <laughs> go 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 and i guess <laughs> now that i i'm a sort of a somewhat self-professed productivity expert. That's sort of what I do now as well. I just teach people how to do that as well. But in a way that's enjoyable, sustainable, uh, enjoyable, sustainable, and meaningful. Enjoyable, sustainable, and meaningful. Mm. It's not the first time you said those three in a row. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes I put intentional in there. 
but I haven't, I haven't yet figured out like a pure <laughs> repetition on this. And that's part of the mantra behind yeah. like the, the commander's intent. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Which yeah. is featured in your book. Absolutely. I, so what was interesting about that is um, it's one thing to have an intent, intent from a commander, but what I was like, oh, and I turned my head was when you tied it to your business and your team and how you communicate. If there's a new idea, mm. does it match this intent, commander's mm. intent? Mm. Yeah, I think that that just speaks to this idea, you know, for people who are not familiar, commander's intent is this idea from from like the Austrian army in like the 1800s, where it's like you kind of, when you're, when you're commanding troops on the battlefield or doing any kind of military operation, you want to explain the intent behind, the, like the why behind why you're doing the thing rather than just the thing to do. And this was really shown up in D-Day in 1941. When was D-Day? 1941? 1945? Two, maybe? 1942? I, I don't know. 1942? Right. Yeah, in D-Day. <laughs> uh, when, when the Allied forces landed, landed on, the beach, on the beaches of Normandy. It was a total disaster. Like, they landed in the wrong place. The platoons that were meant to be with the right platoons weren't with the right platoons. And it was a total fuck up. But because the commanders had communicated the intent behind the operation, i.e. seize strategic units and CCs, strategic areas and bridges and stuff. People knew why they were doing the thing. And so they could improvise the how, even though the plan didn't go according to plan. Mm. And so I think that's where, you know, speaks to the society we were talking about, having like a bit of a vision for your life gives you that why, like, why do you want to do the thing? It's like, once you know why you want to do the thing and like the, the, the intention behind it, now you can figure out the how. The how will take care of itself, even if the how goes, uh, goes off course. Wonderful. One I'm just kind of curious about though, you, you do talk about your mom, few times and your your grandma hmm. i'm just kind of curious uh what's something positive that you've taken from them or that you see in yourself from them oh um my mom is very generous she's a great host she's always keen to have people around like feed people like always going out of a way to pick people up from the airport and that kind of thing hmm. and i really admire that generosity of spirit um i think i've sort of I've sort of imbibed some of those traits in that like at university, my room was always like an open hub and people could just come and go as they ple as they pleased. And I would always have snacks in there and feed people and like always have the door open. Um, and I found that sort of when my mom does that, it was just, just really nice. It creates a really welcoming atmosphere. And, you know, that's part of what we talk about in the book around people. Like if you're, even, even if the goal is productivity, which if for the record, it doesn't have to be, then creating, crafting a welcoming atmosphere with the pe with people that you love around you, it's just so nice. It just makes everything more pleasant and makes you more energized and makes your work feel feel more fun. So I think I've really taken that generosity of spirit from my mom. Mm. I love hearing that. And what about your grandma? My grandma, actually, she used to be an air hostess for the Pakistan International Airlines. And then she decided to forget about that and trained as a teacher. And my grandma did a lot of homeschooling for me and my brother when we were younger, because we were living in Southern Africa. And oh. for like one of the years, the schools that we were in the area of were all too violent for us to <laughs> want to go to. <laughs> and so my grandma homeschooled us. And so I think she instilled within me this love of learning and also the love of teaching. And oh. that has served me very well over the, over the years. I love hearing that. I love hearing those connections to family. Um, yeah, so as we wrap this thing up, I guess my main question is, what would you want to leave the audience with as far as a challenge to them? Something based on the book, perhaps? Something of a dare that mm. they could try out? Nice. That's a very good question. Um, I think, okay, here's a challenge. When, whenever you're listening to this, the next thing you, for the next thing you do, ask yourself the question, what would this look like if it were fun? And just see what comes up. What would this look like if it were fun? Especially if that thing is work-related. If it's already fun, then you know, it's not much of a challenge. But if you have to do a thing in the next 24 hours that you would ordinarily think, or ah, it's boring or like it's work, whatever, ask yourself, what would this look like if it were fun? And do you leave a comment below and report back? <laughs> I love it. What would this look like if it was fun? Okay. Well, thank you, Ali. I've really, really appreciated this. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being episode one of your new podcast. Oh, Look yeah. forward to seeing how it goes. All right. Thanks so much. Before we finish, I just want to do a few socials. So this is the book. I've already pre-ordered the hard copy. Thank you. Feel Good Productivity by Ali Abdal. You can find him on almost all the socials at Ali Abdal, yep. it seems. Absolutely. But the most important thing to do right now, I believe, is to go to feelgoodproductivity.com and think about 
making a pre-order. It definitely helps him out and it helps spread this message. I think it's a message worth spreading. I think it can help you and who knows, maybe some of the people around you. And if you do pre-order, I found this was interesting and you added this, uh, I don't know when exactly, but um, after I pre-ordered, but don't worry, I'm registered. The Feel Good Productivity Annual Planning Workshop. Yeah, we literally launched that like yesterday. Really? Uh, yeah, okay. we updated the website to include that. So basically <laughs> in the first weekend of January, 2024. So if you're listening to this before then, for people as a, as a thank you to everyone who's pre-ordered the book, I'm hosting like a whole annual planning online live retreat type thing where I'll be taking people through some of the evidence-based strategies that we can use to reflect on 2023 and to plan for 2024. Having a good like annual planning session with hundreds of people from all around the world, it's going to be sick. Uh, yeah, well, I'll be there. And again, like if you are into this and you're still listening, then obviously you are, you have to at least check out the website too. That website is sick. <laughs> Thank you. That website Our is Our goal amazing. was to make the best book website in the world. And our publisher was like, guys, I think this is the best book website I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, yes, we got there. <laughs> we did it. Nice. So anyways, you're going to be hearing a lot about this book. Um, well, you will, but everyone was, is going to be hearing a lot about this book. So I encourage you to join the conversation and see what it's all about. Don't stay on the sidelines. Jump into the arena. Thanks, Ali. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of How I Think. We'll be sure to add all the links and resources we mentioned in the video description or show notes, depending on the platform you're watching or listening from. And if you're curious for more, then feel free to check out another episode. I'll see you there.